Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to sexual violence that may disturb some listeners. It's Christmas 1888, and heavy-drinking 24-year-old Henry Lawson, already known as a talented young poet, achieves even greater acclaim when his first published short story, His Father's Mate, graces the pages of the Bulletin. It's New Year's Eve, just a week later, and Henry is at Mount Victoria in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales visiting his father Niels when Niels dies suddenly from a heart condition, aged just 56. It's early January 1889 and Henry buries his father at the cemetery at Hartley Vale, down the steep western side of the Blue Mountains, not far from historic Collets Inn. It's a few months later in Sydney and Henry meets, falls in love with and wants to marry schoolteacher and women's rights activist Mary Cameron, later to be known as Dame Mary Gilmore. It's May 1890, and Henry's mother Louisa, apparently disapproving of this relationship, sends Henry and his brother Peter to Western Australia. It's September 1890, and Henry is back in Sydney, but it's too late to rekindle his romance with Mary and his sadness accelerates his slide into alcoholism. It's December 1891, and Henry pens a haunting poem for the Freeman's Journal that's about a woman forever out of reach, about love gone wrong, about sudden death in Mount Victoria, about drinking at a Hartley Inn, and about grog blurring the senses and sullying a man's reputation. The poem is called The Ghost at the Second Bridge, 
And this is how it starts. You'd call the man a senseless fool, a blockhead or an ass who dare to say he saw the ghost of Mount Victoria Pass. But I believe the ghost is there, for if my eyes are right, I saw it once upon a ne'er-to-be-forgotten night. In the poem, the narrator and his mate drink at a Hartley Inn to steal themselves for the hard hike up the mountain. As they trudge, they discuss the famous apparition of these parts, a woman in black, and, sure enough, she appears and they're terrified. The poem continues. Its eyes were fixed on me, the face, it cannot be denied, was white, a dull dead white. The great black eyes were opened wide and glistened in the light. The men flee, spend a sleepless night, and when they tell the story the next morning, they're dismissed as drunkards. Though a poetic fright of fancy, many of Henry Lawson's readers in 1890 Sydney know who he's writing about. Old-timers might even remember meeting the girl who became the ghost, a young girl born into a tragic family whose fate it was to fall in with a man hiding a monstrous past. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. While the ascent into the Upper Blue Mountains from Sydney is relatively gradual, Going down the other side from Mount Victoria to Hartley Vale can be vertigo-inducing because it's so steep. In 1815, Governor Lachlan Macquarie, travelling the newly opened Cox's Road, which wound down to the pasture lands below, called this part of the journey a very abrupt descent, almost perpendicular. For this reason, alternative routes were established, though these took travellers out of their way. But in 1830, Surveyor General Thomas Mitchell set about constructing Mount Victoria Pass, which would require two massive sandstone causeways as wide as bridges. Two centuries later, the Great Western Highway is still supported by this monumental edifice. Driving this part of the road, I'm always amazed by the sheer drops on either side. And I'm always struck that this mighty structure was paid for with the blood, sweat and tears of hundreds of chained convicts who, over two back-breaking years in this dangerous location, cleared, dug, drilled, blasted, heaved and piled heavy stone. One slip and a convict could plunge into the abyss. One slip of the tongue and a convict could be flogged with a cat of nine tails. When completed in 1832, Mount Victoria Pass was vital to the development of the colony, providing a safer and more easily navigable route between Sydney and the fertile expanses west of the Great Dividing Range. One of the first men to establish himself in this new territory had been Pierce Collets, and anyone who made the descent west from Mount Victoria was familiar with his Golden Fleece Inn at Hartley Vale. Since 1823, just a decade after the first white men crossed the Blue Mountains, Collett's Inn, as it became better known, offered food, drink and beds to weary travellers, with customers ranging from governors to bullock drivers. Irish-born Pierce Collett's arrived in Australia as a convict in 1801 on the ship Menorca. 
Once a free man, he prospered, serving around the Nepean district as chief constable, pound keeper and cattle inspector, before becoming a prominent and pioneering landowner, grazier and innkeeper. His wife Mary bore him a dozen children. But Pierce's offspring weren't as prosperous or prolific as their father. In particular, William, the youngest son, born in 1815, was, by his mid-twenties, a bit of a loser. So much so, that on the 16th of February, 1839, Pierce Collitz took out an advertisement in Sydney's The Australian Newspaper. This is what it said. Notice. This is to caution any person from giving trust or credit to my son, William Collitz, who I proclaim to be an idiot and has no command of any property, only through me, and I will not pay any debts he may contract after this date. In the week following, Pierce softened a fraction towards his son, taking out a follow-up advertisement in which he said, Notice, an advertisement appeared in The Australian a few days since, signed Pierce Collitz, cautioning the public against giving credit to his son, William Collitz, and describing him as an idiot. The portion of the advertisement describing the said William Collitz as an idiot is an error, but the other portions of the advertisement are correct. Though William was said to drink too much and be weak of body and mind, he could still be a catch to a poor young girl from the mountains, especially one whose life had already been mired in scandal and tragedy. Carolyn James was just such a lass. Carolyn James was born at Liverpool, southwest of Sydney, in April 1827, the first daughter of freed Irish convict William James and his freeborn wife Mary. Caroline had two older brothers, and in 1829, her little sister Maria was born. Shortly after Maria's birth, William and Mary moved to a tiny hamlet in the Blue Mountains called Twenty Mile Hollow on account of it being 20 miles west of Penrith. There they set up a rudimentary inn for travellers and they sold sly grog on the side. But it wasn't long before they had competition from a man named Thomas Pembroke, who arrived in the early 1830s with the intention of clearing the land and setting up his own licensed house. Pembroke wanted the James family kicked off the land, but failed because they could demonstrate residency as squatters going back to 1831. And Pembroke refused to pay them to leave. A feud simmered between the families. The tension exacerbated when Pembroke in 1834 opened his finally appointed Woodman Inn. Travellers who had the means would surely stay there rather than at the James's Inn because William and Mary had earned themselves bad reputations. Frequently drunk on their own illegal liquor, William and Mary served up poor quality food to guests and expected them to pay to sleep in grubby rooms. And in their alcoholic haze, William and Mary also fought like cats and dogs. Adding to their problems was that Mary had her sixth child in September 1835. Just weeks later, on the 12th of October 1835, Mary, aged 38, died in terrible and tragic circumstances in the bedroom she shared with her husband. 
In the later words of the Sydney Herald, Mary, a notorious drunkard, hanged herself in her own house, her husband being in the house at the same time, but so much in liquor that he could not prevent her from destroying herself. As awful as that sounds, what actually happened was even more horrific. The law did not believe William James was such a hopeless drunk that he'd been too wasted to stop his wife committing suicide. Rather, he was arrested for her murder, and from the 12th of November, 1835, he was held in Darlinghurst Jail, awaiting trial. His eldest son, John, aged 14, was set to give evidence against his father. Carolyn James was now eight, and her little sister Maria was six. Their brother Isaac was ten, Simon was four, and newborn baby James was just weeks old. These children were now fending for themselves in the remote bush of the Blue Mountains. Neighbour Thomas Pembroke refused to look after them unless he was paid, but there was no one to pay him. Soon the children were starving, and in these conditions, baby James died, and the rest of the children were soon split up. It's not known where the sons went, though they did survive into adulthood. But Caroline and Maria, they were sent to work as servants for Piers Collets at his Collets Inn at Hartley Vale. On Friday the 13th of February 1836, William James went before Sydney's Supreme Court in front of Justice William Burton for the murder of his wife Mary. Harming the prosecution's case, his son John didn't turn up to give evidence, which the Sydney Gazette reported was to have been that he'd seen his father affix the rope and throw his mother from a box. No one knew why John wasn't in court or where he was, with the Sydney Gazette floating the possibility he'd been kept out of the way to defeat the ends of justice. Regardless, Justice Burton allowed the trial to continue, with Thomas Pembroke called to give evidence. He stumbled into the witness box and was found to be drunk, so deliriously drunk that the judge had to order him taken to hospital for treatment and adjourn the proceedings until he sobered up. Hours later, Thomas Pembroke returned, took the oath and began to give evidence but the jury complained that he was still incomprehensible. Faced with the possibility of the prosecution failing because one witness was missing and another witness was missing his wits, Justice Burton took the unusual step of discharging the jury and ordering that William James be retried at a later date. The Sydney Gazette thought the whole affair was utterly bizarre. One of its writers wrote, he was a witness, present and perfectly sober at the beginning of the trial, who, when put into the box, was in such a prostrated state of mental incapacity from drinking that his evidence could not be taken. Accused murderer William James was still innocent until proved guilty. But Thomas Pembroke immediately felt the weight of the law because he was ordered into custody and the next day hauled before Justice Burton. You have been guilty of a high misdemeanour in the face of the court, the judge told him. You were a witness in a case affecting the life of a fellow creature. 
you were put into the witness box and, knowing the responsible station you occupied, you had the temerity, the wickedness, to take the book in your hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, when you must have been aware you could not do so. The judge wondered aloud whether Pembroke had been tampered with, but said, regardless, I am now called upon to punish you, and sentenced him to one month in jail. But Justice William Burton, by discharging the jury, had himself possibly subverted the rule of law. Six months later, on the 11th of August, 1836, William James was in the Supreme Court again, this time in front of Acting Chief Justice John Kinchella and a jury comprising members of the military. Mr Foster, William James's lawyer, complained about Justice Burton dismissing the jury in the first trial. Justice Kinchella said he would consider this legal point, particularly if the present military jury handed down a guilty verdict. The prosecution's case was that Mary James had threatened to commit suicide and tied a handkerchief to a rafter from which to hang herself. Instead of preventing her from killing herself, her husband had grabbed her, tied the handkerchief around her neck and shoved her from a box. A private from the 4th Regiment testified that he'd been at the James's house on the day of Mary's death. We called in to light our pipes in the afternoon. Three or four minutes later, a woman named Jane Smith had raised the alarm about Mary James. The soldier continued his testimony. I looked between the slabs and saw her hanging by a black handkerchief from the rafters. There was a box near her feet. She appeared to be dead. Her hands were up as if she'd been trying to lay hold of the handkerchief. The soldier testified that he'd called to William James, who came out from the kitchen. Told of his wife's death, he apparently said to the soldier, go cut her down. The soldier said, go do it yourself. It was John James, the eldest son, who cut his mother down, laying her body on the floor. The soldier testified that William James had appeared to be sober. He also said that there hadn't been enough time between him seeing William James on arrival to Jane Smith raising the alarm for the accused to have killed his wife. But the soldier's testimony was totally contradicted by the evidence given by a freedman named Patrick Creeran. He'd said he'd been at 20 Mile Hollow at about 8 or 9 in the morning when one of the James boys came running from the family home crying that his mother was hanging. Creeran raced to the house and saw that William, with whom he'd had many legal disputes, was partly drunk. William denied anything was wrong and told Creeran to mind his own business. Creeran ignored him. I went into the room and saw the woman hanging, he told the court. I heard James say, let her hang and be damned. He threatened me and said I had no right to interfere. Creeran testified that Mary was hanging by a red handkerchief and that with no assistance from William, he had to cut her down. She was still alive. But it was a long time before she came around. When Mary did come to, she started drinking rum and then her husband pushed her and she fell down. But Mary then turned on Patrick Creeran and called him a bloody rogue for saving her. She was angry with me, he told the court. I said I did cut her down and I asked her if she was not glad of it. She replied no, 
the prisoner had been long enough trying it on and that if I had not interfered, she would have been in a better world. Creeran said that William and Mary had then argued about Jane Smith and he'd gone into another room. There, by standing on a sofa, he could see over the wall and into the couple's bedroom. I saw Mrs. James with a black handkerchief in her hand, which she tied to a rafter. Mrs. James then got on a box. William, he said, asked her if she was game enough to do it. Mary replied that she wanted to see their son, John. The prisoner said, stop a minute, and then put the handkerchief around her neck and pushed her off the box. He then dragged her by the feet. He then left her and went into the kitchen. The son almost immediately came in and cut her down. Creeran said, having seen this dreadful crime, he crept from the house as quietly as possible for fear that William James, who he knew to own pistols, would blow his brains out. Thomas Pembroke, sober this time, testified that he'd seen the body and told William James to send for a medical man, but that he'd refused to do so. Creeran, Pembroke said, told him that he'd witnessed the killing, but hadn't said anything about standing on a sofa. Thomas Black, the surgeon who attended the death scene, also said Creeran hadn't told him about the sofa. But Creeran, he testified, had said Mary's feet were the height of a table from the ground, which wasn't possible because from the position of the handkerchief, she could only have been just clear of the floor. From the very inconsistent manner in which he gave his evidence, I would not believe him on his oath, said Thomas Black of Creeran. District Constable Samuel, who attended the scene, said Creeran had told him about the sofa, but when he'd stood on the sofa himself to try to verify the story, he couldn't see into the bedroom and he was taller than Creeran. Another soldier from the 4th Regiment said he'd been at 20 Mile Hollow on the day of the death when Creeran had told his long story to Magistrate Campbell. The soldier said he didn't believe Creeran, particularly because he'd said the box from which William had supposedly thrown Mary was about 18 inches high when he himself had seen it was no more than 7 inches tall. William James didn't testify, nor did his son John though it wasn't explained why he wasn't called for the prosecution or for the defence. Justice Kinchella instructed the jury that a person who assisted another person to commit suicide was guilty of murder. But he noted the prosecution's entire case rested on Patrick Creeran and William James's life now depended on whether the jury believed him. The jury retired for half an hour before returning and asking that they be allowed to examine the accused's son, John James. Justice Kinchella said they must return a verdict on the evidence already presented and that while they could re-examine any witness, they were not allowed to call new ones. With the jury unable to reach a verdict before the court was adjourned a few hours later, they were sequestered overnight. The following morning, the jury returned to deliver their verdict. Guilty. On Saturday the 13th of August, 1836, Justice Kinchella sentenced William James to death for the murder of his wife, Mary James. William was set to hang the following Monday. But Justice Kinchella now also said 
he would grant him respite while the legal ramifications of Justice Burton dismissing the previous jury were considered. When the full court had examined what had happened, it was decided that William James should walk free. Though he was now a free man, it doesn't seem that William James played any further role in the lives of his daughters. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 80 miles west over the Blue Mountains at Collett's Inn, Caroline and Maria James, now aged nine and seven respectively, were surely traumatized by what they'd been through in the past year. Their mother had died hanging in their house. They'd been left to fend for themselves, their baby brother had perished, and they'd been separated from their other brothers to work as servants for strangers. Their father had been found guilty of murdering their mother, sentenced to die on the gallows, and then walked free on a legal technicality. Having endured so much, the girls were likely vulnerable to any attentive man. And around the start of 1840, one came calling. His name was John Walsh and he was a 28-year-old Irish-born freed convict. First, John seduced Caroline, even though she was now just 12. And then he had his way with Maria, aged 10. While abhorrent to us today, back then the age of consent was 12 and few would have cared that even if Caroline was legal, her little sister was not. Later that year, Caroline had another admirer in William Collitz, idiot son of the venerable Pierce Collitz. While his father had dismissed him as being without property in the newspaper advertisement, William did have some cattle and assets that made him a better prospective husband than ex-convict John Walsh. So it was that on the 18th of November, 1840 in Sydney, 25-year-old William Collitz took 13-year-old Caroline James as his wife. They lived at the Vale of Cluard, a few miles northwest of Collitz Inn. Eight months later, Maria James married John Walsh at Hassan's Walls, also a short distance from Collett's Inn. Caroline and William Collett's did not have a happy marriage. This might have been because William, as the Sydney Gazette later wrote, had a nervous and weak disposition, or in the plainer words of his father in yet another advertisement, he was considered not of sound mind. William also later claimed that Caroline turned on him when he refused to give her sister Maria and John Walsh five head of cattle. Whatever the reason, 
Less than a year into the marriage, around September 1841, Caroline left the marital home and went to live with her sister and her husband at Gardner's Inn at Blackheath. Caroline supposedly again shared the affections of John Walsh, which led to both her and Maria later being shamed in the newspapers as very loose and abandoned characters. This, even though the girls were still only respectively 14 and 12 years old. William Collitz tried to get his wife back, only for her to throw him out and for John Walsh to beat him. But John also treated Caroline badly when he'd been drinking. Now William placed his own advertisement in the 22nd of December 1841 edition of the Sydney Monitor and Commercial Advertiser. Whereas my wife, Caroline Collitz, having left home some months back without any just cause or provocation, I do hereby caution the public against harbouring or giving the said Caroline Collitz any credit, as I will not be answerable for any debts she may contract, and that any person found harbouring her after this advertisement shall be prosecuted to the utmost rigour of the law. Given Caroline was living with John and Maria Walsh, this was a direct threat aimed at them. But a week later, it seemed there might be an amicable outcome. John Walsh said that Andrew Gardner, who owned Gardner's Inn at Blackheath, wanted to see William Collitz. William, he said, should come to Blackheath and stay with him, Maria and Caroline. Over the New Year's period, Caroline was again on intimate terms with her husband, William, and apparently now prepared to return to the marital home. On the 3rd of January, not long after sunset, Caroline, William and John stopped in briefly at a Hartley pub run by a man they all knew named Joseph Jaggers. John Walsh was already drunk when they arrived, but William and Caroline were sober. William had a brandy, John had several more drinks, and Caroline took a couple of glasses of lemon syrup. They all appeared to be getting on when they stepped out into the moonless night to make their way back up the mountain to Blackheath. But on the road, William and Caroline argued. John took hold of Caroline's arm. Drunk and apparently a little disoriented, he asked, Where's Maria? William told him she was at Gardner's Inn at Blackheath. Come home with me, my girl, John said to Caroline. While I've got a home, you shall have one. And while I've got a shilling, you shall have half of it. John suddenly hit William, knocking him down. William got to his feet. Run, run. He's got a stone and he will murder you, his wife screamed, holding on to John. William bolted. John broke free from Caroline and gave chase, yelling that he was going to kill William. William might have been an idiot and a coward, but he was faster than John and he got away. Arriving back at Blackheath, he went to bed in his room at Gardner's Inn. Two hours later, John Walsh returned, alone. He was wearing only a striped shirt, like the ones convicts wore. He had no trousers, no shoes, no hat, nothing else. Where is my wife? William asked. 
John Walsh told him that the son of the innkeeper Joseph Jaggers and four other men had attacked him and Caroline on the road. Your wife flew into my arms for protection, he said. Pointing to a small cut on his face, he said that Jagger's son had hit him with a pistol and then forced him to strip naked. Hearing one of the men say they were going to cut off his head, John had managed to get away, leaving Caroline with these motley men. I was forced to run for my life, he said, and stopped at the box where the soldiers were and borrowed a government shirt. John went to bed with Maria, while William also just went to sleep. Neither man saw fit to report the incident to a constable. In the morning, William and John went west in a belated effort to find Caroline. Half a mile beyond Mount Victoria, they encountered Matthew Wall, who drove the mail carriage between Penrith and Hartley. Where are you going? he asked William. To look after my wife, he replied. But Matthew Wall knew that was no longer possible. At 6am that morning, coming up the mountain, he'd seen men's clothing strewn across the road at Mount Victoria Pass. His horses wouldn't budge, so he got out and began collecting these items. There was a pair of trousers, a waistcoat, shirt, neckerchief and boots. But there was also a woman's shawl. Moments later, Matthew Wall saw the body of a woman just off the road. Matthew Wall had known Caroline since before she was married. Now, she was barely recognisable. Half her head had been smashed in with a stone which, covered in blood and hair, lay nearby. In a pool of blood, there was a pair of men's braces. It was evident that Caroline had been raped, and it was also evident from a blood trail that she'd been dragged from the spot where she'd actually been killed. Now, Matthew Hall asked William Collett when he'd last seen his wife, and William told him what had happened the night before, when John Walsh had attacked him. Pointing at John, Matthew Wall said, that man murdered her. He showed William the clothes he'd picked up, clothes that John Walsh had been wearing the previous evening. He also produced Caroline's shawl. William Collitz ran down the road to where his wife's body lay, guarded by two soldiers from the nearby stockade. Chief Constable Rogers arrived to take charge of John Walsh, who protested his innocence and repeated his story about Jagger's son and the other men. The mail coach transported all of them, along with Caroline's body, down the hill to Jagger's Inn. There, John Walsh saw Jagger's son and said, You are the man that knocked me down with a pistol and took away Mrs. Collitz. The son denied it. His father, Joseph Jaggers, said that the son had been at the house all night, as did a settler from Mudgee who'd spent the night at the inn. John Walsh was arrested for the murder of Carolyn Collitz. John Walsh was tried for the murder of Carolyn Collitz at Bathurst Court 
before Justice Alfred Stephen on the 31st of March, 1836. He pleaded not guilty and he represented himself. The Solicitor General opened the prosecution by saying that the jury had to set aside all the horrific details and rumours about the crime that they had no doubt heard and that they had to come to their verdict based on the evidence alone. The Solicitor General acknowledged that this evidence was circumstantial, but once the jury had considered it, they'd only be able to arrive at one conclusion, and that was that the prisoner was guilty of murder. Witnesses recounted their stories, including William Collitz and Joseph Jaggers. But Justice Stephen was very critical of the prosecution for not producing as witnesses Jagger's son and the mudgy settler who had provided him with an alibi. That said, the court did hear from two other witnesses who testified that the younger Jaggers had been at his father's house all night. Yet, in an echo of Caroline's father's murder trial, one of these men was discredited for turning up to court drunk. Other sober witnesses gave damning testimony. A sergeant from the 80th Regiment said John Walsh had come to his hut the night of the murder and told his story about being attacked by the younger Jaggers and other men. But the soldier hadn't believed him. He seemed like a man suddenly roused from a state of drunkenness, he told the court. He showed a mark, which he said was the blow from a pistol, but it looked more like a scratch with a nail. A ticket of leave holder who knew John Walsh and who'd been with him the day of the murder said the accused had borrowed a pair of braces from him and these were the pair of braces that had been found in the pool of blood. Andrew Gardner, hotel owner, testified that John Walsh had come back to his hotel late the night of the murder and had been drunk and delirious. He told the story of being attacked, but Andrew Gardner had also thought the little cut was not a pistol blow, but a scratch. When Andrew Gardner asked why John Walsh hadn't reported Jaggers and the other men for their act of thuggery and robbery on the road, John Walsh had given no answer. Andrew Gardner also testified that the clothing found near the body had belonged to Walsh. The prosecution closed its case, leaving it to John Walsh to make his final defence. He solemnly denied his guilt and adhered to the story that he was attacked and his attackers likely were responsible for Carolyn Collett's death. He declared he'd abide by the jury's verdict and he asked the Almighty to direct their hearts to find him innocent of the murder charge. Directing the jury, Justice Stephen again criticised the absence of vital witnesses and said these were to be taken in favour of the prisoner. By which he meant, he said, that they should consider the possibility that some other person or persons might have committed the murder, even if John Walsh was also possibly mistaken as to one of these men being the younger Jaggers. The trial had been going all day, and it was now 7.30 at night. The jury retired, but returned in just 20 minutes. Their verdict? Guilty. 
Justice Stephen immediately passed the death sentence on John Walsh and said he was entirely in agreement with the jury's verdict. In the words of the teetotaler newspaper, the justice implored this miserable man to make his peace with his maker as he could no longer be allowed to remain on this earth but must soon appear before that dread tribunal where all his crimes would be found registered against him. Detained in Bathurst Jail for the next month awaiting his execution, John Walsh, according to the Australasian Chronicle, continued to declare that he was as innocent as the child unborn of that or any other murder. Any other murder? What did that mean? And what had Justice Stephen meant in his sentencing that John Walsh would have to account to God for all his crimes? These were references to the three previous murders that John Walsh had been charged with. On or around the 11th of July in 1836 at Bathurst, while still a convict with the Number 11 Road Party, John Walsh had allegedly used a tomahawk and a heavy stick to smash in the skull of a man named John Crook. The dead man was found in a roadside hut with the blood-covered murder weapons nearby. John Walsh, the court heard, had carried out the killing at the behest of another convict, Patrick Hennessy, who'd had a feud with Crook, with the implication being that John Walsh had committed murder for hire. At the trial, a witness testified to having seen John Walsh with the stick prior to the killing. Another witness said he'd apprehended John Walsh about seven miles past Bathurst. This witness said, He endeavoured to prevail on me to let him go, saying there was not much to be had by taking him. The witness also said that John Walsh had said he feared he'd hang within six months if taken to the police. Faced with so little actual evidence, the judge directed the jury to acquit But it was an even more horrific case that had been tried before Justice Stephen himself that had distinct echoes with the Carolyn Collett's murder. While John Walsh awaited his fate in Bathurst Jail, the Sydney Gazette, along with the Sydney Herald and the Teetotaler newspapers, reported that in 1839 he'd been charged with murdering a woman and her little son. It was established by the evidence, reported the Sydney Gazette, that the residence of the murdered woman had been robbed of some tobacco and a keg of spirits, and that she and her son had been beaten to death with a bludgeon which was then found near their murdered bodies. Not long afterwards, Walsh took an Aboriginal with him to assist him to remove the plunder, which had been concealed near the hut, telling the black that he had been told by the bushrangers where the property was secreted that they, the bushrangers, had committed the murder and afterwards the robbery, adding that the bushrangers were afraid of being apprehended if they attempted to remove the property. The newspaper report continued. A quantity of clothing was afterwards found, besplattered with blood. Walsh accounted for the dress he had on when taken by saying that the bushrangers had forced it upon him in order that he might assist them to disguise themselves to make their escape out of the neighbourhood. 
This defence, coupled with questions about the moral character of a witness, had been enough for John Walsh to be acquitted. But the defence bore a striking similarity to the story of young Jaggers holding him up and forcing him to strip. While John Walsh had walked free in 1839, he wasn't going to escape the noose this time. On the 3rd of May, 1842, a bitterly cold day in Bathurst, he ascended the gallows in front of Bathurst Jail. Still protesting his innocence, John Walsh was hanged. While Carolyn Collitz had been avenged, her soul remained restless, at least according to Blue Mountain's folklore. After his parents separated in the early 1880s, adolescent Henry Lawson spent half his time at his father's house in Mount Victoria. He loved going on long, rambling walks and soaking up the history of the place. With Carolyn Collett's brutal death then only 40 years in the past, there's every chance Henry knew people who'd known her, her idiot husband William, her poor sister Maria, and, of course, the murderous John Walsh. Before and after Henry Lawson's poem, the story of the ghost of Mount Victoria Pass was told and retold. In the 1850s, it was said, the driver of the Bathurst coach on a predictably dark and stormy winter night had been terrified by the sudden apparition of a shadowy, headless figure at Mount Victoria Pass. Around the turn of the century, the woman, with or without her head, was seen frequently, and in 1914, the Lithgow Mercury reported that just a few years earlier, a young man returning from a weekend at Hartley had seen the lady and been so scared he'd turned to drink. Also around this time, two other men riding horses had seen her cross the road and ridden away as fast as they could. As late as 1950, well into the age of automobiles, the Lithgow Mercury said that for years, motorists travelling the Mount Victoria Pass in the dead of night had reported a strange spectre or supernatural sensation. If anyone was going to haunt this eerie stretch of road, Caroline Collitz seems the likeliest candidate having lived a harrowing life that was then cut short in such a horrific manner. Whether you're a believer or not, Carolyn Collett's actual haunts can still be visited. The Woodman Inn at 20 Mile Hollow, now known as Woodford, was incorporated into the Woodford Academy, which is looked after by the National Trust and is open to visitors. Gardener's Inn at Blackheath is still open for business and is a great place to have a beer and a pie by the fire. Down the other side of the mountain, Collett's Inn is a charming bed and breakfast that also makes for a great wedding venue. As for Carol and Collett's ghost, well, just keep your eyes open when you're driving over Mount Victoria Pass. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'd love it if you could show your support for this show by leaving a review or rating 
and by subscribing so that you get every episode as soon as it's released. For more stories, visit ForgottenAustralia.com. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.